Would you turn with me your Bibles to Romans chapter 2? As we uh, continue our study through this book, we're looking at the gospel of grace as explained by the Apostle Paul. And today's message I've entitled simply, Religious But Lost. And uh, we're going to begin our reading in verse 17, so if you don't mind turning in your Bibles there. And if you are able, would you stand with me as we begin by reading this passage from verse 17 on to the end of the chapter. Paul begins by saying, Now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely upon the law and brag about your relationship to God, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law, if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of infants, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then, who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who brag about the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Circumcision has value if you observe the law, but if you break the law, you have become as though you had not been circumcised. If those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? And the one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you who, even though you have the written code and the circumcision, are a lawbreaker. A man is not a Jew if he is only one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a man is a Jew if he is one inwardly, and the circumcision is the circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a man's praise is not from men, but from God. Let's begin with prayer. Father, it is our request that this morning your Holy Spirit would come as our teacher and our guide to open your word to our understanding, not so that we would simply know the facts that are before us, Lord, but that we might really know you and experience your truth. We don't want to have simply an outward faith, Lord. We want ours to be as well an inward faith of the heart, the kind of thing that actually truly transforms a life. And so we look to you for your help in this, Lord, as we study your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. In a recent survey <clears throat> by LifeWay Research, the researchers found, they said, quote, Almost three-quarters of Americans who haven't darkened the door of a church in the last six months think it is full of hypocrites. As harsh as that assessment may seem, I have to agree with it, but for reasons maybe far more different than you might expect. You see, hypocrisy is a function of the human condition. Not only is the church full of hypocrites, so also is the synagogue and the mosque and the temple and the halls of Congress. Well, I didn't need to say that, did I? Or the place where you work, even the place where you live. Because after all, what hypocrisy is, by definition, is the practice of claiming to have moral standards or beliefs to which one's behavior does not conform. Now, before you become too defensive or too accusatory, let's step back for a moment and think about that in terms of your life and my life. You see, oftentimes what is referred to in our culture today as hypocrisy is really nothing more than human frailty. It's the inconsistency, the all-too-common disconnect that exists between our attitudes and our behaviors or our actions. And we all are subject to this. Let me give you kind of a, an innocuous illustration, which I'm sure only applies to me and not you, but it will help nonetheless to elucidate the issue. 
Recently, AAA, the American Automobile Association, did a survey, and they found that 90% of Americans uh, agree that it is wrong to text while you're driving. 90% of Americans. My first question is, who are those 10% of idiots out there? You know, I mean, pretty much we should all be in agreement that that's not a great idea. But one-third of those people who agreed that it was a wrong idea said that they do it at least once a month. Half said that they think there should be a ban on all types of cell phone use, even phone calls, even though two-thirds of those people who stood for the ban said that they regularly use their phone while they're driving in traffic. I mean, there have been times where I've passed police officers who are driving down the road talking on their cell phone, and I thought, can I give him a ticket? I don't know. It's an interesting dynamic because before you become too really kind of incensed over such inconsistency, such hypocrisy, stop and think about something in your life that at one moment you can stand and say, well, that shouldn't be the case, but you yourself find yourself doing it, slipping into it even thoughtlessly. You see, Paul himself even admitted that he struggled with inconsistency in his life. I mean, chapter 7 of Romans is classic. Verse 22, he says, for in my inner being, I delight in God's law. Literally, inside of myself, I really find pleasure in the things that I know are true and that are right and good. But he says, I see another force at work in the members of my body. I see this other impulsion, even waging a war against my mind and, and making me a prisoner of the law of sin or the principle or the force of sin. In short, because we are sinners, we sin. I mean, it's that simple. We often fall short of the ideals to which we ourselves even aspire or even promote to others, so much so that parenting oftentimes has come down to these adages, do as I say, not as I do, the truth of the matter is that's not a great argument because most people will do as you do regardless of what you say. And that's true on any level of life. Now, I know that I should not text when I drive. I know that it's always a bad idea. I know that it is unsafe both for myself and for other people who might happen to be in my way as I cross the center line and enter their lane. And the vast majority of the time, I do not text when I drive, but sometimes I do. It's important. It's a necessity. Now, those of you who are sitting back saying, well, I never. That's because you don't own a smartphone. That's your problem. <laughs> You see, what Jesus and Paul were concerned about was not simply the fact that you and I are inconsistent. What he was concerned about is when we're pretentious. In other words, we pretend. There's a kind of dishonesty that pretends that we are consistent when we're not, that we're not sinners when we are, that we don't fail when we do, that we don't struggle when it often is the case. We'd rather kind of create an illusion of adequacy or, or competence, which is kind of ironic because when you look at God, He surrounds Himself with the incompetent. It's not that He has to uh, make do with a bunch of fools. He actually chose them to be His followers and to serve Him. In part, you see, our problem is a matter of misdefinition. Originally, the word hypocrite was used to describe an actor who was skilled at impersonating the character on the stage. Uh, literally, the word meant a play actor. In the Greek world, they wore masks that served to conceal their true identity. You might only have one or two players in a play, in a Greek drama, and he would be, one player would play several characters by simply putting on a mask. And of course, women weren't allowed to be on stage, so men had to play the role of women as well. And they would put on a mask of a woman and go out and pretend to be what they were not. 
But basically, the idea was to conceal their true identity and to project a false persona. Over time, that word took on a moral tone. It, it came to mean someone who is playing a part or pretending to be something he or she was not in an effort to deceive. And not simply because they're insecure. There's a lot of things that you and I do based upon insecurity where we kind of allow ourselves <coughs> to be perceived or to misrepresent ourselves because we're afraid of what people will think. And that's not necessarily the same as hypocrisy. Rather, hypocrisy is a very intentional effort to deceive somebody in order that you might gain advantage over them. So that by the time of Jesus, the word had really migrated a great distance. It had gone from the theater into politics. The first time it was used in a metaphorical sense was to address the politicians of the Greek world in the 4th century B.C., and then it went from politics to everyday morality until finally it ended up being a religious moniker. Now, Jesus identified a great many different kinds of sins that, that you and I can be guilty of. In fact, in places like Mark 7, uh, verse 21 and 22, Jesus gave us a list. He talked about evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, folly. We might call them the evil 13, if you will. But what's interesting is he reserved his most common and harshest words, not for people who are guilty of those kinds of transgressions, but those who considered themselves not as sinners, but rather as super saints. In fact, 25 times in the gospel, Jesus spoke very harshly about the hypocrites. In fact, in, in chapter 23 of Matthew's gospel, the entire chapter is dedicated to it, where he said, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees. Now, keep in mind, the teachers of the law were the scholars, the, the rabbis, the men who were most esteemed for their religious training and learning. These were not some ordinary guys. These were guys who literally could quote the entire Old Testament from memory. Very common that they could recite it verbatim just based upon memory. So these are learned men. These are men who have the law etched into their brains indelibly. And he talks about the Pharisees, which Paul himself described as the strictest sect of the Jews. In other words, they were the most fastidious in their commitment to following the teachings of the Mosaic law as carefully, as literally, and consistently as possible. But he says of them to his disciples, he says, you must do everything they tell you. After all, if they're communicating Scripture, Scripture is true, but do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy loads and put them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. And so seven times in Matthew 23, Jesus threatens them with woe. The word literally means great sorrow and trouble and distress is about to come upon you. Woe, 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 he says seven times. Woe to you teachers of the law and you Pharisees. Why? Because you are hypocrites. He characterized them as fraudulent pretenders. They were blind guides trying to lead the blind and were helpless in helping anybody in a meaningful way. They had no personal interest in truly knowing God because for them religion had become a career. It wasn't a calling. It was a line of work. And if some effect and the thing that bothered Jesus the most, as he says later on in Matthew 23, 13, he says, your lives are roadblocks to God's kingdom. Roadblocks to God's kingdom. It's interesting dynamic that developed in the, early, in the first century. As the Roman and Greek world began to collapse under its 
moral latitude. In other words, there were no real moral restrictions. When we think about idolatry in the ancient world, you have to understand that idolatry was about rituals that you would perform in order to gain or access the power of the gods, but there were no moral regulations. The, you know, uh, whether it be Jupiter or Fortuna or any of the gods didn't really have any set of rules they wanted you to follow. They just wanted you to worship them, and the whole idea was to access their power. Well, by the time of Jesus, many Romans and Greeks had come to realize that there was this moral bankruptcy within their cultures. And so they were attracted to Judaism. In fact, when Paul began his evangelistic ministry, he would go first to the synagogue, and the people who listened to him most readily were a group that we referred to as God-fearers. They were Gentiles, non-Jews, who would go and listen to the teaching of the Mosaic Law and the script Old Testament prophets and were really enamored by its truth, even though they themselves had not converted. So that when Paul shows up at these synagogues and starts preaching the gospel of grace and informs them that you no longer have to be circumcised and keep the Mosaic law to be saved, but you just simply can ask Christ into your life and you'll be born again in the Spirit and receive eternal life, well, suddenly those God-fears started following Paul because they heard for the first time the good news. Prior to that, they'd go to the synagogue and they'd hear the bad news. <laughs> the bad news that you're going to hell in a handbasket because you live in this fallen culture. You're a condemned people because you're not a Jew. And the only way for you to get saved is to completely turn against family and friend, walk away from career and everything you have, to be circumcised, which as an adult is an extremely unattractive option and to simply adopt the lifestyle and culture of a different set of people. In other words, you cut yourself off from everything that is familiar or friendly in your life. And suddenly Paul said, all of that's unnecessary. What you need to do is just be born again. This becomes the heart of the real animosity between the Jews and Christianity. As Paul would say to the Galatians, if I just taught that you could be circumcised, all of the offense of my message would go away. But when I start saying to a Gentile, that's unnecessary. Do it if you want, but it's unnecessary. Then suddenly he became the object of a great deal of hostility. And all of the early persecution was fomented by the Jews. And it said that they were envious because many of these Gentiles who had begun to attend and to contribute financially to the synagogues suddenly started following Paul and not them. They considered him to be a stealer of their flocks. This is the dynamic again that Paul is confronting in what we just read. And he begins by pointing out that the Jews were above all other people a privileged people. He says to them that they had been entrusted with the very word of God. It was literally, he said in verse 20, the embodiment of, the knowledge, of knowledge and truth. So the fact that they had the scriptures and the fact that they had this heritage of, of knowledge and the prophets was a huge advantage. They knew so much more about the heart of God. He goes, went on to tell them that they know God's will, that they had been instructed by the law, that they were, they were competent to guide the blind, a, to present a light to those who were in darkness, to be instructors of those who were foolish, to be teachers of those who are intellectually infants. But then he goes on to really illustrate that over time, those same privileged people had forgotten something that God had told them to never forget. In fact, it's interesting, in the book of Deuteronomy, nine times Moses says to Israel, do not forget, do not forget, do not forget, do not forget. Five times he tells them in that same book, remember that you were slaves in Egypt. What did he mean by that? He said, when you come into this land where this land of milk and honey, this land of plenty, you're going to move into houses that you didn't build. You're going to harvest fields you didn't plant. You're going to reap the bounty of, uh, of vineyards and oliveyards and other things that, 
others had put there before you, when you claim the riches and the treasures that were once theirs and now have become yours, and you are satisfied, and you are full, and you are blessed, don't forget where you came from. Don't forget that you were lost and alone. Don't forget that you were a desert people wandering without anything. And everything you have, I gave to you. In fact, in chapter 7 of Deuteronomy, he's talking about things to remember. He warns them, the Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other people's. For you were the fewest of all peoples. We might translate that. He chose you not because of your greatness, but rather because of your insignificance. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your forefathers. Now, what part did they have in that? God loves you. Why? Nobody can answer. But he made a promise regarding you, not to you, but to your forefathers, so that essentially everything that Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the other forefathers had established covenantally with God, all those rewards and blessings were now being passed on to them simply because they were, bi they were uh, biologically descended from those great men of faith. God says, I chose you to bless you. What that should do is remove from us any sense of our own self-made significance. They were, in fact, simply objects of God's mercy, objects of God's grace, not the products of their own goodness or greatness. They were called, but not because they were competent. They were chosen not because they were capable but simply God says, I've loved you. I've loved you. Love is a, a strange thing because in our human experience, we always love others because of something. I remember my wife asking me early in our relationship, why do you love me? And I would dither because I couldn't come up with an answer I thought really was right. Well, I love you because you're pretty. And she said, but what if I'm not pretty anymore? Well, I, I love you because you're one smoking hot mom. No. <laughs> I mean, you, know, you go through all these lists of things. What is it that you love? And it's always a because. And that's the nature of relationships, isn't it? Tell me why you love me. Let me count the ways. You know, and yet God says, I love you because I am love. <laughs> I can't, there's no assignable cause other than the fact that that's who he is. That's his nature. And that may not make you happy because you want God to say, I love you because you are smarter than everybody else in the room. Or I love you because you just have that winning way about you. Or I love you because you're charming or you're taller than everybody else or you can put a ball through a hoop or you can run across a goal line or we want to have something that we can assign, say, this is the reason why God loves me. And God says, the moment I move in that direction, really, the relationship becomes extremely temporary and tenuous. But when I tell you that I love you because that's who I am, then we can truly say at the same time that my love is also the same today and yesterday and forever. It doesn't change. And there's a security in that, but also there's hopefully a humility in that re relationship. Because what happens when you don't understand that dynamic is that privilege, instead of being a gift, privilege metastasizes into pride. The salvation becomes a mark of superiority. Compassion is replaced with condescension Humility is replaced with hubris. Law is replaced with lawyers. The seer, the prophet, is replaced with a sophist who can simply twist a word to say what he wants it to say. Truth gets trampled under tradition, and the knowledge of sin is replaced with self-justification. 
But what becomes the most damaging is that pretending to know God, pretending to love God is soon replaced, replaces a true passion for God in your life. And that's when hypocrisy sets up its tent in your life. That's why Paul asked these men, he says, you know, you, you rely upon your circumcision and the fact that you know the law. You are basically confident that you are chosen by God. You have all this sort of certainty about your relationship with God. And yet he says, look at your life. You who preach against stealing, do you steal? And most commentators don't think that he's talking about shoplifting or walking around with a gun doing strong-armed robbery. What he's talking about is there's ways that we can legally steal. There's ways that we can legally steal. You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? And Jesus raised that one to a higher level when he said, just to look lustfully on another person is essentially the source out of which, the sinful source out of which all adultery and fornication and illicit sexual relationships come. You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? Lots of conversation about what that literally means. We're not really quite sure. Except that temples were the banks of the ancient world. You put your monies in the temple, and they then turn, use those monies to lend out to other people. That's where the whole banking industry and the idea of lending industry came out of the temples, having all this excess income, and somebody figured out, you know what, we can just sit on this, but we can make money off it for both ourselves and for others, and suddenly by charging really unreasonable interest rates, they were able to enrich themselves. And many times, the Jews, who were expert at handling financial items, became the very bankers of the temples of the pagans that they condemned. And so he says, you who brag about the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? Essentially, it said, rather than being ashamed of their sin, they rationalized it. Do you know anybody who does those kinds of things? Did you see him or her in the mirror this morning? Well, it's not really my fault. I know I shouldn't have lost my temper, but I was provoked. <laughs> I know it's, it wasn't really, that box of paper clips really wasn't mine, but, you know, I needed some at home, didn't have time to drop by the store. So, I mean, they won't miss them anyway. So, what's the big deal? And it's easy to rationalize stuff, isn't it? I remember the young man I had gotten complaints about his leering looks at the ladies, and I set him down and said, there are ladies who are uncomfortable with your leering looks. And he said, well, I, my pastor told me that the first look is appreciation, the second one is lust. I said, in your case, I think the first one is lust. <laughs> I think you need to give up. But what a rationalization. Well, it's just appreciation. Holy. <laughs> they don't appreciate your appreciation, so knock it off. <laughs> You're just kind of creepy. But it's so easy. But here's really what, what bothered Paul, the same thing that bothered Jesus. When he said, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. It's ironic because what they couldn't see or they could rationalize, the whole world could see. It was transparent to everyone else. What happens is for the Jews and for many, even within Christianity, that a relationship with God can really be lost or replaced by ritual. In the case of the Jews, a rather nasty one called circumcision. But nothing set the Jew apart more than this distinctly unique way of separating yourself from the rest of the world and declaring that you are distinct in a culture that was not nearly as concerned and modest as ours, the idea of public restrooms really kind of gave pretty wide open revelation 
uh, to where you stood so that if you were a Jew, uh, it wasn't something that was really hard to figure out and quite often it was open to examination by those who cared. This ancient symbol of faith nonetheless, like baptism or communion can be to the Christian today, became really a substitute for true substance, as is often true when faith turns liturgical. And if you think that you're exempt from that, I have to tell you that even within our context, there are things that we do with such regularity that when people go to a different church, they will say things like, well, it just doesn't feel like church. My dear mother would always say, well, I, I really like listening to you speak, but I just, there's no organ, and if there's no organ, I just don't feel like I've gone to church. And I said, so one time I had the band come out with an organ, and of course, it was more like uh, playing of the Grateful Dead than it was the, the newly born, but uh, they were rocking away, and then Leslie Speaker was bouncing all over the stage. I mean, it was beautiful. It didn't work for her. It just wasn't church. And we, we do this. And I'm not saying that that's necessarily bad or wrong, but over time we begin to sanctify our own preferences. So you find the church gets into arguments over which version of the Bible are you reading? Well, if you're not reading the King James, I, I just have to say, if it was, the King James was good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for me. In fact, one guy actually, supposedly, claimed to be a scholar, but he actually said one of the most amazing things. He said, well, even though the King James differs from our oldest manuscripts, I believe that the Holy Spirit so influenced those translators that he had them through the Spirit correct the errors in the original manuscript. I, I was speechless. <laughs> I just had to say, that's wrong on so many levels, I don't know where to go with it. But you find that it's amazing how that we can cling to things with such a lack of reasonable logic because we just prefer it that way. And the sad thing, it can often be a barrier to what God is trying to accomplish in your life. Because what I have found about God's Word into my life, when God wants to speak to my heart, He often says things that I don't want to hear. Anybody else have that experience? <laughs> I just, I, I'm like you. I sit there and I just wrestle with it. Oh, stink. Why did I read that? <laughs> now what am I going to do? Because I know that there's something that has to die to my concept of myself or my plans for my life or some other thing and I wrestle with it. But what we do when we sanctify our preferences, we simply arrange really our theology so that it never pinches us, it never closes in, it never creates a depth of discomfort or struggle, and we feel the sense of superiority, and we begin to condescend. We begin to look down on people who aren't like us. Now, granted, there are a lot of sins that I've never experienced, and I can't say, well, I know exactly what they're going through because I do not know what they're going through. I don't know why some people are attracted to some of the things they are and why it's a struggle for them, but the danger is that I begin to assume that that's because I made a better stuff. As my dear Germanic mom used to always say, well, we come from good stock until we discovered that through that good stock that there had been a congenital disease that's passed down through our heritage. She was absolutely convinced it couldn't have come from her stock. <laughs> but we can begin to think, well, you know, we just, we're superior. I mean, well, you know, you're saved, but we go to Calvary. We know the word. <laughs> you know, it's kind of like name dropping. Well, you know, 
The other day when, when uh, Barack Obama called me for some advice, um, oh, I'm sorry, I, I promise not to mention that. Never mind, just forget that. Because uh, it, uh, it was something about Hillary. And I, I, anyway, I just, you know, I'm just an ordinary guy. We, we do this kind of stuff, don't we? You know, I know somebody who knows somebody who actually knows somebody. That makes me somebody. <laughs> and I like, to, I like to draw names. I, I, I like to impress people by telling them, well, I actually know the God of the universe personally. His, his son actually lives inside of my heart. But he said again, where does he dwell? He dwells in clay jars. <laughs> he dwells in clay jars. Nothing special. That God, when God saved me, he was slumming. But you see, what happens is we begin to rely upon these things as the Jews did with circumcision. To them, it was the very keys of the kingdom of God. It was the evidence that they were a privileged and a chosen and a special people. And what happens is the outside of my life becomes far more important to me than what's going on in the inside. And that's a simple thing to say. Jesus even criticized them, when, well, John did in his gospel when he said of the spiritual leaders that they loved the praise of men more than they desired the praise of God. Literally, they found more fulfillment, more significance, more in the applause of man than they did knowing that God was a source of their approval. And here's the tough part, friends. The way that God teaches you to love his approval more than the approval of men often is he removes from you and your life the approval of men so that all you're left with is the approval of God. That only when we find that men-pleasing is a destructive thing and unreliable do we finally come to a place where we say, God, as the psalmist said, who do I have in heaven but you? There is none other. Because when that doesn't happen, faith can become superficial and our lives become shallow. There's a shallowness to our faith, to our lives. So that Paul set out to explode this myth by saying to him, I love the way Peterson put it in his, his rendering of this passage. He says, it's not the cut of a knife that makes a Jew. You become a Jew by who you are. It's the mark of God on your heart, not a knife on your skin that makes a Jew. I love the way Peterson basically reduced the significance of circumcision by saying, in the end, all of it is, is an incision. It's a cut of the knife. And a cut of the knife never changed a heart. God's marks that he really looks at are not the ones that you can see on the surface, but one that are deep in the hearts. Now granted, the Jews, by comparison with the Gentile world around them, were paragons of virtue. That's why there was an attraction when they lived in these morally bankrupt cultures and they saw the circumspection and the, 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 the devotion and the morality of the Jews, which was far in excess of everything else they saw in their culture. There was an attraction to it. But it's easy to forget that compared to God, even at our very best, we are just as unsaved and just as unclean as the rankest of those who reject God. And what they did, ironically, like the immoral and the idolatrous man we talked about in chapter 1, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They exchange it for something different. The immoral and the idolater exchanged it for, for all sorts of indulgences of the flesh. The moral man sits back and says, well, like Peter, I, I've never touched anything that's unclean. But the problem is you touch something else that is even more unclean. You begin to think that you're acceptable because you've met the measure of the divine. But suddenly, 
I've exchanged God's truth that I'm a sinner who needs to be saved, and I'm saved by grace because He's a merciful God who loves me into I'm saved because, well, look at my works. Look what I've done. Look at where I go to church. Have you seen how big my Bible is? Have you, I, I have my, my initials embossed on this book. I'll tell you. You want to see how many pages are marked? You want to see my notes? You know I'm walking with God. What was the lie that they had exchanged? Well, that they could save themselves through their own heritage or through their own rituals or their works, through their own religious efforts and knowledge. And in the process, they ended up becoming the very thing that they condemned. They were supremely religious, but they were absolutely lost. It's chilling when we read Jesus' words in John, in Matthew chapter 7, where he said the day would come when men would say, Lord, Lord, and he said, depart from me, I never knew you. No, he doesn't say, I, I used to know you. He said, I've never known you. But we've, we've, we've given to the poor. We've driven out demons. We've, we've done this. We've done that. He says, but you don't know me. You don't have a relationship with me. And that's why we, we emphasize over and over again that God is all about relationship. He's not about works. Oh, it doesn't mean he doesn't care about our works. But he wants our works to be the result of a relationship, not based upon the idea that somehow I can fix myself and save myself. What they missed is something that Paul said to the Corinthians in chapter 12 and verse 9 of 2 Corinthians. He says, and I love this, it's from the Living Bible. It says, my power shows up best in weak people. My power shows up best in weak people. That's something that's really kind of repugnant to most of us. Because none of us really relish the idea of being evident to everyone else that we are a weak and failing individual. We want to see, feel competent and in control. And at the very least, we want to be armed and dangerous. We want to make our mark and let people know that they, they can't push us around. And yet when God looks upon the planet and he looks for vessels that he can use, he's not looking for the mighty. He's not looking for the strong and the competent, the capable. He's looking for people who in themselves have recognized that other than Christ, I have no greatness in me, no power in me. Being born into a privileged position, despite its advantages, doesn't make somebody superior. I think if you think that's true, you just need to do a study of the royalty of England. And you realize that people who often rise to the highest positions aren't the sharpest knives in the drawer. But here's more importantly, that I may live in the light and as a consequence, I may see more, and I may see more, more clearly than someone else does. But that light is not of my own making. It's a gift that was given to me by a merciful God. And therefore, it's something for which I should be grateful, and I also should be generous. Grateful to God for enlightening my eyes, generous in my desire to see other people experience that same enlightenment in their life. And that comes from gratitude. Where Paul starts in chapter 1, because they were not grateful. So that's oftentimes the great irony that Paul is drawing his ears. He says, you can pick the two extremes. You can take the immoral and you can take the supermoral. And they both can become captive of the same problem. They're not grateful. So that Jesus, trying to illustrate this to his own disciples, 
we're told, one day was sitting in the Solomon's porch in the temple in Jerusalem, and he was watching people coming forward to put their money in what they called the offering trumpets, these, these boxes that had this trumpet-like brim on them that when you dropped your coins into them, it would ring and make a sound that would echo and would draw the attention. Now, in other words, the, the bigger the amount of coins you dropped in there, the bigger sound it made and the more impressive it was for the people around you. And he said, there was this woman who came and she dropped two mites. A mite is a little tiny copper coin. You could, with two mites, you could buy a day's bread and a place to sleep. And she drops them in and Jesus basically asks, who has given more? And then he refers them to two men who are praying. One is a tax collector and the other one is a Pharisee. And the Pharisee is praying, oh God, I thank you that I'm not like this guy. I've never done any of the terrible things he's done. And the tax collector was sitting there saying, God, have mercy upon me because I'm a sinner. And Jesus asked the question, which one went home justified in God's eyes today? Which one? And the answer is obvious. The man who stood in the confidence of his own goodness was not, may have been justified in his own eyes, but not in God's. The man who knew that he had no right to even be standing, it said he wouldn't even lift up his eyes, which was the Jewish custom in prayer. He wouldn't even put his eyes on the temple. He felt like, I have no right. The depth of his shame was so great. And he said, have mercy upon me. And I suddenly realized one day as I was reading it that when we cry out for mercy, there is an irresistible draw of God to that person. When I sit there and saying, Lord, I have a right, and how can you let this happen? And don't you see what they did to me and how wrong they are? And da 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 da. And when are you going to settle? And da da And the prophet said, Heaven became brass over my head. But when we come to God and say, God, have mercy upon me, for I am a sinner, have mercy upon me that God hears and He looks and He blesses and He forgives and He cleanses and He finds pleasure. I think it was Phil Keller who many years wrote in one of his books, he said that it appears that God enjoys the company of sinners more than He does the righteous because He spent so much time with them. I think that's a bit of an exaggeration but not a complete exaggeration. Jesus saw value in the prostitute, in the alcoholic, in the drug addict, in the criminal, the thief. He saw value in them, not in their, their devaluing behaviors. He saw value in them as those whom God had come to redeem. What causes the non-Christian to say, it's just a bunch of hypocrites? It's not just our inconsistency but rather it's often our condescension. The fact that we look down on them. As someone was asked, talking with a prostitute a while back and on the street and kind of encouraged her to go to church. And she said, why would I want to do that? I feel bad enough already. And you just realize that when we look down condescendingly upon people who are broken and bruised and battered by life, we become pharisaical in our attitude. But when we look at people with the kind of compassion that was in Jesus' heart, then we begin to really have a point of connection. Because the one thing I know that, as John Townsend said in one of his books so well, he said there are two things that every man wants. He wants to be fully loved and he wants to be fully known. But he's afraid of being fully known because he knows that he probably won't be loved. And so he doesn't want you, and he knows that if you love him, he can't tell you honestly who he is because then you'll stop loving him as well. But God fully knows you he knows everything about you. He knows stuff about you that you don't even know about you. And he still loves you. 
And we know that we are beginning to grasp that truth. That reality is beginning to take over our lives. When we begin to treat other people in the same way, that when we hear the worst things about them and we love them anyway, then we begin to show God's heart. Father God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would take the things that I have attempted to communicate this morning and translate them into life-changing bullet points for each of us. That I'm convinced, Lord, that any message like this is going to touch each of us in a different way, at a different place, at a different level. But Lord, I pray that it would touch us that we wouldn't simply be those that James warned about who look at the perfect law of liberty like a mirror and then we get up and we forget what we just heard, what we just saw. Lord, as we continue together for a few more moments, I pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would create a responsiveness in our hearts of people who just desire to reflect the love of God that has been shown to us. Many of us are deceived by a sense of our own goodness. We're falsely comforted by our own morality. And we don't see, Lord, that we're not superior. God, I pray that you'd rebuke that spirit of condescension that so often emanates from the community of faith, from believers in you. That instead, Lord, there would be just a generous gratefulness that would dominate our thoughts and our our conversations, our perspectives. That, Lord, we would be known as people of grace and not people of guilt. We ask in Jesus' name.